You know, at our our talk earlier kind of reminded me of something between uh, Mike Tyson and Evander, Evander Holyfield. Um, I think he misunderstood. He was champing and then he bit. <laughs> he's a champ. Just he was the champ because <laughs> he's a boxer. Yeah. So, listeners, just just hang on to that. It'll be not hilarious in about twenty minutes when we actually make that <laughs> reference. So. Just something to keep in your back pocket for later in the show. <laughs> Call Ford. You're, you're trying not to laugh, Paul. <laughs> I think he's getting better, Paul. I gotta admit. I'm, <laughs> How dare you? Maybe it's Do not encourage this. <laughs> maybe it's Stockholm syndrome, Paul. But I, I'm really starting <laughs> to like the puns. <laughs> Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hi, Matt. <laughs> hi, Stuart. How are you? Hi. How are you doing? How's life? I- I'm great. We're all here. That's great. Uh, tonight, we're going to be talking about the transition from the PGY3 to early career. We talk about sort of finding a job and some of the steps along the way. And uh, also, this is I should mention that this is part of the I Am Power series that we are co co-producing with the American College of Physicians. This is geared towards residents who are sort of going through various transitions in their career. And this is one of four episodes that we'll be making on the topic. We already released the Becoming a PGY2 episode, which is fantastic and you should check out. Peabody Um, Award winning. Paul, how about you tell them in general what we do on this show in case this is their first time hearing it? Yeah, if this is your first time hearing this, what a disaster, and I'm sorry. Um, But we are the Internal Medicine Podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. And as the great Dr. Wado alluded to, um, this is sort of less of clinical pearls and just sort of more life knowledge and uh, career bombs. That doesn't sound right, but sort of (laughs) general guidance uh, as you transition, hopefully, out of your third year of residency. And uh, with us tonight, uh, we have... The great Dr. Justin Lee Burke recently graduated from residency. Uh, for these episodes, we like to have a a more junior member and then a more senior member as our expert. So Justin is serving as our more junior member. Justin, welcome back to the show. Thank you, guys. Justin has done just, uh, I don't know, Justin, what have you done, like 20 shows at this point, like as producer, and- writer? It's, it's been a ton. Almost as many as Paul. It's been a fun ride. Uh, that's probably not true. That's definitely not true. <laughs> Certainly not higher true. in quality. No question there. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, all right, Paul, why don't you tell us about our lovely guests for this evening? It's Our guest is indeed lovely. We are fortunate to have back uh, one Dr. Aliyah Chisti, who is presently the program director of the Internal Medicine Residency Program at the Penn State College of Medicine. Uh, Dr. Chisti completed her residency at Yale and went on to pursue a general internal medicine fellowship at UCSF. She has a particular interest and expertise in medical education and the role of mentorship and career development. Um, this is a biography she sent to us. She's actually won a bunch of awards and is, has done a ton more stuff and is really interested in sort of the professional development of the people that she sort of mentors through. And she's also just one of my favorite people on the planet. So we're extraordinarily fortunate to have Dr. Leah Chisti to help talk us through what to do after you're done with residency. 
Aaliyah, thank you for coming back. You've been on the show many times, but maybe some people don't remember you or haven't heard your other episodes. So can you tell them a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, do you want the one-liner? Yes or no? <laughs> or I'll we're take, just going to scrap I'll, it? <laughs> I'll take a one-liner, but I, I know you're stressed about it a little bit. So it's it's a no-pressure one-liner. It doesn't have to be It doesn't have it doesn't to be have like to be super. Perfect. It doesn't have to be perfect. Yeah. All right. It's any then reassurance. We'll it 90% and... of people have skipped past this part already. So <laughs> okay. fine. No one is listening. Great. It's just us. <laughs> so 38-year-old woman, um, wife of a very avid superhero fan, um, parent to two very spirited and energetic boys, um, whose personal kryptonite, that's me, um, is uh, coffee and chocolate, and who believes that she has the best job in the world because she is both a physician and a medical educator. Done. Nicely done. (laughs) You were so nervous, and then you just like knocked it out of the park. Yeah. You guys are too nice to me. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I, I've had the pleasure of meeting your husband, and uh, I think I think he's fantastic. I can uh, I would lo- I love to hang out and talk with him. He's he's an awesome guy. I imagine your kids are the same. He is definitely my better half, and my kids are incredible. So <laughs> I'll leave it at that. <laughs> All right. Uh, what should we do now? Uh, should we should we give some picks of the week here, Paul? Yeah. Sure. All right. You want to start us off? And uh, Aaliyah, you can think of yours if you have one. Yeah, I'm happy to start, as always. I, I'm going to go with another movie that has no relevance to the topic at hand. I mean, because they'd be hard to come up with anyway. But I just saw uh, last night the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood movie, Quentin Tarantino's Ninth or Tenth, depending on who you ask, um, starring Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio and Margot Robbie and, and everyone else in Hollywood. And it's probably, Tarantino's great, but it's probably one of his very best. Um, the ending. I, so really, so really, the reason I want you guys to go watch this is I need someone to talk about it with, um, the same way I with mother or sort of other movies. So I'm not sure you're going to enjoy it, but I just need to be able to discuss it with someone without ruining it. So if someone could please just go watch it, so we can have that conversation, it would help me out a lot. But I, I'm recommending Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the new Tarantino movie. I need a couple months, but I do plan to watch it. It looks it looks fantastic. It's spectacular. But the last 15 minutes are absolutely bonkers, um, and I I just. Yeah, please, please watch the movie, Watto. I need this. <laughs> Justin? Uh, yeah, I have one that's kind of timely right now. Uh, my pick of the week is the greatest city in America, the Charm City, uh, Baltimore, Maryland, uh, which I'm very sad to have recently left. Uh, but it's an incredible city that has a lot of grit and charm and community pride in all things Baltimore, whether it is a seasoned salt like Old Bay or a kind of lower tier beer, Natty Bow, which is no longer even brewed in Baltimore. They have so much loyalty to Baltimore products. It's a phenomenal city. Uh, uh, I miss it. It's great. Everyone should go and uh, enjoy Baltimore. And if they wanted to sponsor any episodes of the Curbsiders... Uh, <laughs> yeah. The we, city of Baltimore. The city we, of Baltimore. <laughs> I think we can really, really drive their tourism <laughs> industry. Absolutely. There you go. Curbsiders brought to you by Old Bay Spice and Crap. <laughs> Stuart? I'm going to take a hard pass. Hard pass. Okay. Uh, I will, uh, you know, I, this is this is not quite a pick of the week, but I'm just going to say it anyway. So something fun for you parents out there. My My oldest two children are now reading, like, chapter books. So I'm reading these, like, 
I'm reading chapter books with them. I, I Leah, I told you about this. We we read Harry Potter, and uh, <laughs> yeah, and now we're you know starting to read like the Roald Dahl books and things like that. And I, I find it fun actually. Like I, I'm usually reading some like kind of heavier nonfiction stuff, but to turn the brain off at night, it's nice to read like just some of these like really nice, well written uh, kids books, and then talk about them with my kids. So if, if anyone wants to do that sort of nerdy behavior, I would highly recommend it. It's pretty rewarding. I didn't even know they made books from the Harry Potter movies. <laughs> so is your pick of the week just reading? Am I understanding this correctly? Your pick of the week is just I, books. I said I said it wasn't exactly it, it's more you know, like it's more of a high level concept. I'm chapters. sorry. I'm sorry, Paul. Uh, I also watched John Wick three. Uh, <laughs> hey, I did too. Curbsiders brought to you by Old Bay and Books. Yeah, uh, Paul, I'll probably cut this out, but I was listening back to uh, one of the grand rounds where you recommend John Wick 3, and it was just, you were describing them hucking kitchen knives at each other, and I was just dying laughing. It was hilarious. That was the Walter Reed grand round. That was. I was so embarrassed to recommend yeah, it. But that's it. right. <laughs> I actually went to go see that with uh, two of my kids. Yeah. It was quite family friendly. <laughs> There's horses. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, ninjas on motorcycles. You guys are all giving Matt a hard time, but I totally understand what you're talking about. Because I read, you know, we're reading fun little books all the time. And my favorite book right now that I'm reading with my four and a half year old is Wolfie the Bunny. Okay. Uh, So it's about a little baby wolf that gets adopted by a bunny family. And the little sister or like the big sister bunny thinks that the wolf is going to eat them all. And actually she ends up standing up to him up for him to a bear and like and then adopts him into the family it's really cute (laughs) you know Aaliyah you're I I appreciate you supporting me and I support you I'm gonna look out for this Wolfie the Bunny book when we go to the library my wife's going to the library with the kids tomorrow so maybe she can check that out and I will continue Paul with my picks of the week to try to get under your skin (laughs) (laughs) next up movies big fan and also food (laughs) like food a lot (laughs) Paul, why don't you start us off here? Let's let's get into the topic. We are gonna we are gonna talk about some actual medicine here, uh, at least uh, kind of you know parts of medicine. Yeah, so we're we're talking really. The thrust of this episode is to focus on your transition out of the third year of residency, which is I, I think a nerve wracking time uh, for most sane people. If it's not, um, you terrify me and are probably a glassy eyed sociopath. So you should be a little bit frightened. So we're here to help shepherd you through the process, and we're going to start as we always do with the case. Um, this time with our, our medical student who is now a new intern. Her name is Lizzie Blackwell, and she's very motivated. She fell in love with internal medicine during her clerkship, uh, and she can't imagine doing anything else in her life right now. So early on in her intern year, Lizzie asks you, her faculty advisor, to meet to discuss how she should plan out her career. And so we can sort of power through this part because we're early on in her career. But um, just sort of starting out for folks who who have a sense of what they want to do, I think uh, – we should, how should we counsel Lizzie and what should we tell her what she's getting and done in her intern year, her second year, and how should she be mapping out her career at this point? So my opinion in this is that she's an intern, so we, I really want her to focus on being a really good intern. And so, you know, once she starts to feel comfortable with knowing where the bathrooms are and where she can um, – you know, when when and where she should go to get her best lunch in the hospital, um, she can really start to focus, um, start to keep her feelers open and really just 
pay attention to what she's really enjoying doing um, while she's going through intern year, but really being open to everything because this is the year when she's, you know, she's in residency to be a great general internist and she needs to learn how to um, do medicine first. And so really that's just being open, being interested. Um, I would say it's great that she's really, really excited and wants to start planning out her career. But the most important thing she could do is focus on her intern year, figuring out the basics of being a, a newly practicing physician where her signature matters and um, that she can start to be open and receptive to the things that she really enjoys and pay attention to things maybe that she enjoys a little less. I think, I think what you're basically saying is that and I remember this as an intern, I was just so, it, it took so much focus and energy just to get through my to day. To find the bathroom. Putting in the order. <laughs> yeah. Basically, like every everything you do as an intern, especially early on, is like, is something new. And so until that stuff can be kind of, can become automatic, like you don't even have like the mental capacity or like the, just the bandwidth to be thinking about big questions like what sort of, career am I going to want like when I graduate this residency I ever told you the story of my first day of internship when I couldn't find the bathroom yes I think you told it on air uh at least once or twice I can't remember if I included it on an episode because (laughs) it was kind of gross (laughs) but I think you told it to Abby we'll pass (laughs) but right so we're making the point that that Lizzie is kind of aspirational right now and not most people in their intern years in case just in case fresh interns are listening to this are not going to have identified what their career is going to be. So don't. So Lizzie is atypical and a little bit weird, but we should. It, but we're grateful that she's being so proactive. I think there's an intern that's reassuring, too, sometimes like, it's nice to be able to tell the intern like you don't need to be working on letters of recommendations and research right now. Like it's about survival and about, you know, making sure that you're you're doing the basic things that you need to be doing. But I will point out that I think that it's great that she actually reached out to her resident advisor and was proactive about that because one of the best things that she can do as an intern is to start to develop mentoring relationships. And so I am really actually excited that she has identified somebody that she feels comfortable approaching that person with these questions because one of the big things that I've noticed is that because you're so focused on being an intern, sometimes you're really worried about whether or not um, – people will respect you, people will think that you know anything, um, that you might not feel comfortable approaching attending sometimes. And so it's just really reassuring for me to see that she's actually reached out to an attending and actually wants to talk about what her future career could look like. And I think that's really the the most amazing first step that she took. And I I always am a huge uh, proponent of... um, encouraging residents to seek out mentors during residency. I'm still surprised that a lot of people can go one or two years before they actually can identify a mentor. And so the fact that she feels comfortable approaching and attending and identifying someone as um, as a mentor or as a, in a mentoring relationship is actually really great. And I would um, encourage all in all residents and especially interns um, to start identifying mentors and it doesn't always have to be um, an attending it can be a near peer mentor it can be like a second year or third year or it can be a chief resident and all of those um, like identifying people that you feel comfortable going to with questions concerns um, comments that's what's going to make your time in residency actually probably more successful 
Aaliyah, I just wanted to make the point. We, I believe we might have talked about this in the past. I have many mentors at this point that I've sort of accumulated over my career. And I, I never formally asked any of them to be a mentor. I just kind of like kept you know, a relationship going with these people and they seem to take an interest to in me and they gave me advice. And then like, eventually you start to call them a mentor, but like, you don't have to like go up to somebody and be like, will you be my mentor? That's kind of coming on strong and you might, I don't know, you might scare them away. So I, I think some programs might like assign a mentor type or advisor type person, but most of the mentor relationships that I have, they just kind of like, just sort of organically develop. I love that you bring up that point, Matt. And so you're right. A lot of programs are going to either have like an advisor program or a assigned mentorship program. And some programs are actually maybe not going to do that. And the thought process behind that is that sometimes you do these matches and they don't work out and people don't feel comfortable going to that person or they meet once and they're like, okay, I'm really, really busy and I this person isn't interested in the field that I'm interested in or I don't really know what I can use this per- or how I can um, get help from this person. And so um, what I actually really in- love is this um, idea of developmental mentorship and it comes out of the business literature. And basically what it says is it empowers the mentee to actually think about the different so in the business literature, it's like about you're going to your different social spheres and identifying different mentors for different purposes through those social spheres. And what um, what I like to think about, how I like to think about in, in medicine is, especially during residency, is that we expect residents to be great clinicians, great educators, leaders, do research, you know, and then still have some sort of semblance of like work-life balance or wellness. And so it's really, it, because you have these very concrete spheres, you can start to identify people you might consider mentors or would want to approach for mentorship in those different areas. And so it's great because then it helps the the resident actually have more than one mentor. So they're not putting all their eggs maybe in one basket, but they're getting different perspective and different viewpoints and may have different people and different level, like different parts of their training who they can go to. So maybe their clinical mentor is actually like a chief resident or a third year resident. And maybe their um, work-life balance mentor is really, you know, a a peer. Maybe it's a fellow intern who's like, you need to get out of the hospital right now. (laughs) And maybe their research mentor is actually their attending, you know, and uh, who wants to help them with some QI project or an abstract that they're working on from a clinical vignette that they saw together. So I think thinking about it in more um, that you're going to need a team and it could be organic, it could be partially organic, it could be partially assigned, or it could be assigned, and all of the above are good options, and that you don't always necessarily have to formally define it. Sometimes it might help, especially if someone is really, really busy, or very, like, let's say, I don't know, you want the head of GI to be your mentor. You might want to be like, hey, do you think you have time to be my mentor? <laughs> and then kind of assign it and label it that way. But otherwise, I would, I would encourage people to have more than one mentor, and then to kind of identify a little bit, at least in their minds, if not with that person, that they want that person to be their mentor sometimes, just because people can be busy. And if the mentor doesn't sometimes realize that the mentee considers them a men, you know, a mentor, it might um, not always, they might not always prioritize that relationship the same way. So Aliyah, I think, I feel like, and you've taught me so much about sort of the concepts of mentorship and, and being a mentee. And I, I guess, Probably initially, I kind of thought of being a mentee as almost sort of a passive process. Like I actually did approach someone who was like, "Hey, I could I could do some mentorship in this. Would you please do that?" And they were nice enough to do it. But are there 
are there things that the mentee should be bringing in sort of to the relationship or, or like what can they do to sort of help best facilitate things and, and make the mentor most effective while we're kind of on the side path? Sure. Um, so <laughs> there's a great paper actually that was published, I believe, in academic medicine that gives little tips to a mentee, you know, how how to be a great mentee, basically. And I can send that to you guys. And if you want to make it available, I'd be happy to share that with you. Um, but some of the tips are really about um, the most successful mentoring relationships are when the mentee knows what, what questions they need answered. And then then they're getting what they need out of that relationship and the mentor feels really positive about themselves because they're able to answer those questions or get them the help that they need. So this is successful on both sides. <laughs> it's a win-win. And so um, what I would encourage for for um, interns and residents, if you're going to be a good mentee, some of the things are to go to your mentor about are to have concrete questions that you want answered. Um, so just being like, hey, I just need help and just sometimes word vomit is okay. They can help you think through the word vomit and they can help you think through what's going on in your mind and how you're feeling and all of that. But having um, specific things that you kind of want addressed or help thinking through certain things or um, specific advice that you're looking for, that can actually really help to uh, make that, that meeting and that relationship really successful. Some of the other things, I don't know if you're interested in this too, is just knowing how your mentor um, operates a little bit. And so knowing if they like to be like face-to-face or if they prefer phone calls or if um, they like to get like an agenda ahead of time, um, all of those things can be, can help to also enhance that relationship. Yeah, I, I wish someone had told me about the concept of like mentoring up uh, earlier on in residency because I think going into that meeting with like actual questions and more preparation going in rather than, Hey, I need help. Uh, made the meetings a lot more effective and helpful. Make me more better. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to my method, which was, please just tell me what to do. Yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. Tell me. It sounds like mentorship could be its like whole own episode, but I, yeah. I think we should move. We should move forward to Lizzie's second year. And what, what is going to be different now? She's now she's kind of like, in the middle of her residency, what does she need to do now differently in order to move towards her early career, first position, first job? So I think PGY2 is really critical for career development um, because this is probably the year where she's going to realize if she wants to pursue a fellowship, if she, and because the timeline is really important, she's going to need to apply at the end of, you know, in the summer of her third year. Um, So, she'll need to really identify whether or not she's interested in a a specific subspecialty and really start to pursue academic pursuits in that. So research in particular, I would say. Um, If she's interested in thinking about um, a generalist career, uh, this is also a great time if she can start to um, think about what skills she may need in addition to that. So some people actually or some programs will have tracks and uh, people will either apply in, you know, at Temple, you actually start in the primary care track, but in some of the other um, tracks, you actually apply into it at the middle to end of your your first year, and then you can kind of specialize a little bit during your um, your second years and third years, and that can help you get additional experiences. Whether if you know you're doing extra rotations, if you're doing med ed, you can get extra elective time in that. Um, so 
second year, I think, is a really nice year where you can start to explore and tailor a little bit. Um, some people decide that they had gone into residency with a certain interest and because of all the, because they were so open to all of the experiences their intern year and in their second year, sometimes they changed their minds. And I think that's great too. And you should be excited and open to do that as well. Um, other things that you, I can think about for the second year is really start to really towards the end of second year, really ensuring that you're solidifying what kind of career path you're thinking about going through because your third year is going to be, again, about applying either for fellowship or for a job. And so having some type of timeline and getting starting to think of your starting to get yourself prepped towards the end of second year for what you're going to be doing for your next steps. Um, especially like if they are going for a job um, and if they might be if the resident is geographically limited for a certain reason, let's say a spouse or um, family reasons, they may want to actually start the job search a little bit earlier than like September of their third year, which is around when I you generally recommend people starting. Right. What do you think about signing a contract in second year for a job? Is that a, a good idea, bad idea? I mean, because I've seen this happen before too, where they, they kind of get pigeonholed into a job sign a contract they're kind of stuck I think it's a little early I mean some people I guess if you know you know um, I just took the role as a program director um, at Penn State and I've come across this yay thank you <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited to be there it's amazing um, I was giving her a standing ovation yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I agree that it might be a little bit um, early and I'm always I'm only wary because I wonder if that person also had an opportunity to, sh to review that career opportunity with a mentor, um, which I strongly recommend that you do because even coming out of residency, you might not know how to advocate for yourself or what you might be able to ask for or review when you're applying for a job. And doing it especially as a second year, I, I always am worried, but um, some people know and hopefully they'd have approached a mentor or been kind of guided through it so that they're not just doing it um, by themselves. I, I wanted to say, uh, because I, I do want to spend most of our time on the third year and the early mm -hmm. career, that we have episodes coming out on becoming a PGY-1 and becoming a PGY, uh, like becoming a PGY-3. So like we will be covering like every year, we've already done becoming a PGY-2. We've So we'll have like every year covered so people can look out for those. Some of them are out, some of them will be coming out. And this one we're gonna kind of focus mostly on the on the job search th thing. So Paul, what's the next, uh, what's the next part of this? Yeah, so let's let's get Lizzie there. So we we've not been able to dissuade her from internal medicine, um, <laughs> which makes us very happy because we are champions of internal medicine. All she's killing her rotations. Um, her interns love her. Her students love her. Her fellow upper years respect her, uh, and she's starting to look for actually a job in primary care. God love her. Um, at the beginning of her third year of residency, and she's she's not quite sure what to do or how to start or even what she should be considering. So after after you do your standing backflip. Um, <laughs> How, how do you tell Lizzie to start looking for work um, and where should she go from here? Sure, that's a really good question. Uh, first of all, I'm so excited she wants to go into primary care. Yay. I mean, it's the right choice. Yeah. <laughs> Obvious choice. Um, so I always encourage um, people, sometimes they think that they have a long time because they have the entirety of third year to apply for a job. And I would encourage them to start thinking about this earlier rather than later. So I give them the summer to really 
polish their CV, start to get your cover letter ready, start to think about who you're going to ask to be your references. Because even though you don't need letters of recommendation, you may or may not, depending on the job, but you do need references or someone who's going to be able to say how you perform clinically when you apply for a job. So um, I definitely want them to work on that during the course of the summer. I usually say around September to October, you want to start um, thinking about where you're going to be applying. How do you approach that depends on what you kind of want to do and if you're limited geographically based on family or personal reasons. Um, If you're looking for a job and you kind of know where you need to be, like for example, when I was looking for my first attending job, I was... Um, in fellowship in San Francisco and I knew I needed to be in Philly because my husband had matched at Penn for ID fellowship and I was like all right I just did a med ed fellowship or clinician educator fellowship I only want to work in an academic center because that would make the best use of my my fellowship there are you know x number of academic centers in Philly I'm just going to apply to them and what I did is I actually just cold emailed the division chiefs of general internal medicine and I was like Hi, I'm Leah Chisty. I have to be in Philly. Well, I have to be in Philly, but I'm going to be in Philly for the, you know, at least the next two years. I just, you know, I would love a job. I have these credentials. And so please, please consider me. <laughs> but it's okay to totally cold email people. Um, <laughs> we we do a lot of that. But but I think <laughs> I think what you're what you're saying is and what you're kind of alluding to is that if you have the option there, it's always great to reach out to your network and say, hey, I'm going to be applying at this institution. And then that you write your cover letter, which is usually just an email that says like right. kind of who you are, what you're looking for, what your skills are. And then that person says, hey, here's this wonderful medical educator, Aaliyah Chisty. She's so positive and fun to be around and you would be lucky to have her. And then they kind of hand deliver that. And then you know, that's that's the best case scenario. But a lot of the times you're not going to have that, especially if you're moving across the country. You're right. And I, I really appreciate you saying that, Matt, because absolutely you should use your mentor, net, you know, mentorship network. Um, and your best advocate and the best, best person who can do this for you and set up relationships for you or introductions is actually your program director. And so making sure you involve your program director or any faculty that you believe are big advocates or have kind of done this before or have been to other institutions before, really utilizing them and getting their advice and helping them to set up introductions for you. Because a lot of faculty, especially at academic centers, they... Um, or even not at academic centers, like people go to conferences, they may have a professional network, they may know people at other institutions that you are interested in going to. And the, and always getting an introduction um, can help to, um, just as the recipient of multiple emails, if you know the person on the other end who's sending the email, it kind of increases the stakes, right? Or it increases your likelihood that that's going to be more urgently responded to or, or approached or addressed. And so I think just from human nature, it makes sense to have the introduction. And as you're, so first things first, using your developmental uh, mentoring network to actually know what's out there, talking to your program director who gets a million junk emails and sometimes not junk emails about um, possible job offers. What as you're starting to just kind of look for places, what other what other resources exist just to kind of see what jobs are out there? Yeah, uh, so you should you should be able to you should feel empowered to go to different professional societies. A lot of them, like the ACP, will have a career center that you can 
uh, explored. A lot of jobs are advertised there. You can narrow it down by what kind of position you're looking for, what kind of state or geographic area you want to be in. And so either going to like the ACP website, um, some of the other, like the New England Journal has like a career center. So you can actually look for different um, professional societies or I guess, journals and um, actually see what their career center looks like and actually look for jobs through there um, as well. Um, I actually found my med ed fellowship through the New England Journal of Medicine. (laughs) So I highly recommend it and think that it's possible. Also now, I mean, a lot of jobs are, are posted on social media. So LinkedIn or Doximity. Um, So those are all viable places through which you can get jobs. I, I wanted to throw a question to Justin here because Justin, he successfully uh, graduated residency and found a job, which will be starting in just a couple weeks here, uh, maybe less than that. Justin, what did you find any resources helpful that haven't been mentioned? And how, how can you talk a little bit about how it was fitting this into like a busy final year of residency? Yeah, no, um, absolutely. I think a lot of the resources were things I tapped into. I think um, my program director was a huge help in connecting people, uh, whether it was division chiefs or other program directors at other institutions. One of the resources that actually helped for a couple uh, leads um, were previous graduates who were in the program who had just started at uh, academic institutions, which is what I wanted to do. Um, The... SGIM, the professional societies, the uh, journal career centers were a good help. And even though I don't know that I had a great lead from either of any of those that much, it was really good at kind of helping to see what was out there and helping me think about what I wanted to do. I did not have any geographical ties, so I cast kind of a broad net, uh, which was fun, but also very overwhelming. Um, And uh, uh, as far as like tying it into the busy schedule. I mean, it was definitely tough. Um, you know, fortunately the program was supportive. You, we were able to kind of work around and like, there's a lot of like trading of shifts and things. Um, but there was some places where a couple of times that I was going to go to an interview and it's almost like med school and residency where it didn't really quite fit the schedule. And that was a challenge enough to say, if I'm not willing to go that weekend, is this really somewhere that I plan to be for the next four years? And I think all of that throughout the process kind of helped me shape what exactly I was looking for in the job. Um, I think we, we would be remiss not to mention that the ACP actually has a span, fantastic uh, career center. So not only do they actually see what jobs are out there, but I think they have stuff about how to actually polish up your CV, um, tips for the interview. And I, I think also the New England Journal of Medicine has a really nice career center too that talks about specifics of the employment contract, um, which is something that is uh, that maybe we'll get to, but is opaque and I think not taught to a lot of us. So there, there's a lot of journal resources that are actually really, really useful if you just take the time to kind of hunt for them. And we can link and to those in the show notes. And the the uh, the SGM and ACP and a lot of the um, academic uh, organizations have the interest groups that. If you have a specific interest group and go there and there's 12 people that are doing addiction medicine or prison medicine or whatever specific interest uh, group you have, they it was very well received to have a resident go to those groups. And I think they were very excited to say, like, where are you looking at being next year? And I think those are a great, easy networking uh, opportunity, too. Yeah, but what about all these amazing emails that I get to say, hey, <laughs> come to nowhere and earn $350,000 a year yeah, working four days insane. a week? I know. It's crazy. What about... What about uh, those marketing emails and marketing groups that reach out to you? What are your thoughts on those? So 
are we talking about recruiters? Uh, yes. Of? So it's a it's complicated, and I think that there is a role for having recruiters. Um, they are advocating for whatever institution that they're um, they're trying to recruit for. Some places are going to have trouble recruiting because of geographic location or other reasons. And most people, they may want to be in a more urban environment. Maybe this is in a more rural um, this is a more rural institution. And so I think recruiters have a place. Um, they do present potentially opportunities that you might not have considered. Um, but you also have to be careful that, you know, there is, the recruiter works for an institution, they don't work for you. And there is um, just a thought process that maybe that person's um, reimbursement is going to come from potentially part of uh, what might not, what might have been offered to you. And so I think that that's something to just kind of keep in the back of your mind. Um, I don't think that that it's, there's, you know, if you have a short time frame within which to get to someplace or, you know, you need to be someplace um, in a, uh, that you don't have a lot of flexibility, you don't know, um, you don't have a lot of contacts to get to this one area, maybe the recruiter can be really helpful in that in that way of like help facilitate you get this interview, get these opportunities. But I, I always I'm always a little bit um, cautious. I just wanted to point out here that we're we're probably not going to talk specifically about the fellowship match, but mm-hmm. a lot of the timelines I think are going to be similar for like when you start polishing CVs and things like that. Like they'd be putting stuff into ERAS around the same time as you're polishing your CV. And maybe that'll be a separate future episode. But I think just so the audience knows, we're going to focus on like, as if you're finding a job. So for people also leaving fellowship, this will probably be helpful to them as well, where they're starting to think about uh, leaving their job. Maybe it would be uh, helpful now to kind of recap the timeline of things, uh, Aaliyah. If you wanted to go through that, and then we can sort of start dig into some of the specifics of like the job hunt. Sure. So the timeline really is like your intern year. You're open. You're excited. You're going to be figuring out how to be an intern. Your second and third years are more about you starting to explore, refine where you want to be. And in your early third year, you really should have an idea of what you want to do and what kind of job and what kind of um, geographic area you want to be in and what kind of position you want, whether it's academic or community or um, or you know inpatient, outpatient, whatever that that's going to look like. Um, I usually say around your summer, so like July and August, you want to start polishing up your CV and getting your cover letter ready, your references in line. Um, Always definitely ask your program director. I'm sure she will want to be one of your references. (laughs) Um, And then around September to October is when you want to start really applying for jobs and sending your CV out there. You want to be in that first group of people who gets interviewed and looked at for jobs. Um, this comes from personal experience. I didn't, I had to wait till after December. Um, and when I interviewed for jobs, I was told a few times that, you know, I kind of missed the first wave and I was lucky that someone declined a job and that's why I was offered an interview. And so I would really encourage everyone to be, um, be applying for jobs in the, fir- in the fall so that you're able to go for an interview in like October, November and December. Um, and then that way you can be in that first round of people that are interviewed and can potentially be in that first round of offers. Um, if you're waiting till after the holidays, that's okay too. You know, you may be in the same situation I was in. Um, and 
It's survivable. Okay. <laughs> I, I did the same thing when I left. Uh, when I left my when I left the Air Force, I was applying in the sort of like December time frame, and it was the same thing. I mean, it, it actually helped me narrow things down a little bit uh, <laughs> because there was there was not as many positions available. But it's a good strategy. The reason yeah. we're the it's reason the tyranny of choices. Yeah. The reason we're releasing this in August is because we we want people to, you know, have this information as they're going through the process uh, and thinking about it. And, you know, that that's that's why we're trying to release it now. I maybe we would have should have released it a couple months back, but the things happen when they happened. And then okay. So then so so now, my tombstone. We're at, now we're 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 in the fall. Aaliyah, we're in the fall and uh, we're doing the first round of interviews and then how do how do they finish out their, their third year? So um, the first round, so can I just like take us to the interview for a second? Yeah. Just because um, you may not be invited right away, you might actually have to do a phone interview. And that was something that I, that was like a new concept to me. You may actually have to speak to a division chief or the person or the medical director of your clinic for 30 minutes and kind of, kind of gauge for on both sides if you guys are going to be a good fit for each other and whether or not it would make sense for both of you to come out there to interview. Um, so you'll have probably a, a phone interview in the beginning. Um, for that phone interview, I would encourage you to have a little bit of what we call an elevator pitch, a 30-second spiel about who you are, what your skills are, what you're kind of looking for in a job um, so that you are kind of prepared and they think that you are focused um, <laughs> during that interview and might have some semblance of an idea of what you are planning to do for yourself. Um, before you actually go for that, definitely, again, talk to your mentor. Make sure you practice so that you sound like you um, have thought through this pretty well um, before you have that that phone interview. And then um, you'll get invited. Hopefully, yes, you did awesome. So you're going to get invited, obviously. Sure, they want to meet you <laughs> for an in-person interview. <laughs> um, we are going to go to that interview. The big tips that I will say: definitely wear comfortable shoes because you might have to walk around a whole lot. <laughs> and to um, bring a few copies of your CV, just because people will have received it via email, but. Maybe they haven't looked at it in a while, or maybe their printer wasn't working that day and they couldn't print it out. And so just having a, fo- a copy of your CV with you will make you feel like, oh, hey, this is my CV in case you didn't get a chance to review it and have that interview with the different people that you're, ha- you know, you're interviewing with um, go more smoothly. <laughs> so those would be the two big things that I would say for the, the interview day. Just make sure you have those two things with you, with the shoes and the... Um, uh, and a copy of your CV. You guys already know, dress in a suit. Um, <laughs> and uh, you might also, again, want to just definitely do a little bit of research the night before on the institution and who you might be interviewing with, especially if you've received an agenda ahead of time. It'll just make you appear more interested because you'd have get put in the time to actually research a little bit. Um, I'm sure this is stuff you guys already know, so I'm just rehashing the the same stuff that you already know. Yep, it's all gold. I want to <laughs> I want to ask yeah. Justin. Uh, I want to ask Justin if uh, anything having having heard what Aaliyah just said about the interview process. Is there anything that you wished you would have known, or that you found particularly challenging about the interviews that you want to like make the audience aware of? Sure. I think all of that is great, and that came up where people said, "Oh, I looked at your CV, but like, do you have it?" Um, because I forgot what it looked like. So things like that were, were very helpful. Um, I think at different institutions, I, people were interested in different things about 
my whatever record or how I was selling myself or what they wanted. And so trying to find out early on uh, what they were interested in in uh, their hiring process. Like there was one job that was a little more focused on kind of actually kind of a admin role. And I realized that kind of early on. And so throughout the interview process was shifting more towards that. Um, and I think the other thing for me too was um, figuring out exactly what role I wanted. Like I knew I had a general sense that I wanted to do inpatient and outpatient. I knew that I wanted to have um, some dedicated time to work on projects. And it was a little bit of a war of attrition because I had so many, uh, uh, because I had no geographic ties. It turns out there's a lot of academic institutions in the United States. <laughs> uh, and it just kind of whittled down of who would be, you know, able, willing to let me do all of those things, which cut it down first. And I will say a couple times I'd have the phone interview and they got on the phone and be like, this is great. I think this is a perfect fit. We can do all this. And then I got a follow-up email that was like, hey, We'd love to have you. Uh, the role now has none of that, but uh, you know, uh, <laughs> you seem we'll see. And it was, uh, and so I think that was a little bit confusing and, and a little discouraging at first. Um, but I think it helped me because I knew I wanted those things. And then when I st- actually had physical interviews with the institutions that offered both inpatient and outpatient and some academic time, uh, it became a little bit more like how many weeks of inpatient time do you want for medicine and pediatrics? It was like how many of each side, because as the details kind of came, it became a little more clear that I didn't know exactly what I wanted. And that made it very hard to compare offers or compare final jobs um, when some people were trying to meet exactly what I wanted, but I didn't know exactly what I wanted. And I think through that interview process, it kind of made that a little more clear for me. So can I ask, I want to go back for a second, because I just, I think this is, it's it's nice to have two different perspectives here. So for Justin, you just want to practice someplace where you could use your stethoscope, it sounds like, <laughs> as opposed to Aaliyah had fairly specific geographic needs. And I, I just wonder how how does sort of your the specificity of your geographic needs affect what you do or how many programs you apply to or sort of how you think about the job hunt? Does that make a huge difference, Aaliyah? I think it does because you're going to be, because you're geographically limited, you have to be a little bit more flexible, I think, because you may be going to a place that might not have everything, like your dream job, whatever that would look like. And I know sometimes you, like you were, Justin, you were saying, you didn't, when you realized you were going on these interviews that you didn't know the specifics of what your dream job was going to look like. (laughs) And so I think having a little bit more flexibility, maybe applying, you know, thinking about applying for jobs earlier, if you can, if you have that, the luxury of knowing what your geographic limitations are ahead of time can actually set you up a little bit earlier. I mean, the recommendation that I've seen in all of the readings that I've done is that if you are geographically limited, start earlier and apply kind of more broadly and apply to all of the the possible jobs in that area. You know, it, what, it's, go ahead, Justin. I was just say one other thing that did come up that was comical was a few places when I emailed them around this time, actually in August, uh, they said, great, um, you know, we're trying to get someone in the next couple of months, so your timing is right. Other people said, oh, it's great that you're getting early. We can get you in. And others were like, well, we won't know till January. Like, why are you, you know, emailing us now? This is ridiculous. It's, you know, so early. And uh, I think having a uh, – it happened with a couple of different things where I think having a little bit of a – not thick skin, but recognizing that uh, – 
what you wanted. There's other places that when I said what I wanted to do, they're like, well, no entry-level job will let you do all of that. And I was like, no, I, th- I think I think there are some. Um, that It was kind of this weird where I think sometimes the people I talked to made it sound like what I was asking or the timing of what I was asking was ridiculous uh, when, in fact, it was not. And so those were your top choices then? <laughs> yeah. I, yeah I, I, it was nice not having geographic because it was, it was cool being able to – yeah, I want to, I'm very, very happy with where I went. I mean, it's going to be very exciting. It's really, really good. Stuart's yeah. been champing at the bit. Paul, <laughs> yeah. is it, Sorry, is it Stuart, champing sorry. or no, chomping? I've never been happier, Wado. Strong work. It is champing. <laughs> is it champing? It's oh champing. Gosh. Horses champ. Horses have <laughs> okay. bits and horses champ at those bits. Chomping is, is a dumb thing to say. All of you, stop it. Sorry, go ahead, Stuart. <laughs> yeah, I can only take you seriously now because you have that mustache. So um, I, I was just going to say that as someone who who actually does these interviews on the regular, one of the things that is always somewhat of a red flag to me is is when you are so polished and it seems like every single word is you're so careful choosing which word you're going to say that you're not being authentic to who you who you are. You've got to be very careful that you stay true to who you are. Be careful not to say yes to everything because you're looking for a job, but you don't want to be desperate. You don't want to say yes. You don't want to accidentally sell yourself to for something that you are not actually going to be happy to do because we have a job for you. But we want to know that that job matches who you are. And I don't know who you are if you're so polished. Excellent point. Yeah. Being too polished and too articulate is constant feedback that I get from trying to work (laughs) on. Yeah, it's phenomenal. Okay, Justin, <laughs> you brought up a really great point. And, and Aaliyah, I think maybe you can comment on this. So I I learned so much when I was interviewing when I left, because my first job was assigned to me by the Air Force a- after residency. And when I left the Air Force, I You're welcome. had four years as an attending and uh, I was looking for a job uh, you know, as an early career physician and on the interview trail, people were like teaching me stuff kind of like somebody, somebody said they were talking about FTEs. I didn't know what that meant. So it means full-time equivalents, right? And <laughs> someone told me, they're like, well, how much of your FTE do you want to be clinical? And how much do you want to be like this curbsiders thing you're talking about? And how much do you want it to be? Do you want any research? Aliyah, can you talk about like, do you tell people to think of it, it like a pie or Please counsel us. Give us your wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like the the analogy to a pie. I think that that's totally fine, um, and and a really nice way to think of it. And so, it's going to be really hard because. <laughs> Stuart, Stuart's bragging that he's 1.5 FTEs, meaning, meaning he's doing one and a half jobs. So no, no, no. one and a half basically. Pies. 1.0, 1.0 clinical FT is a full-time job. <laughs> okay, so if anyone is looking, anything less than that is part-time. <laughs> so some places like, you know, 0. 0.8, 0. 0.6, 0. 0.4, you know, 0. 0.5, all these are part-time. So if you want a full-time job, it's a one, one clinical FT. <laughs> now that can look different depending on the institution that you're going to. Some places will give you... Um, like 0.8 clinical will be a full-time FTE and that point, you know, your institution give basically is giving you a freebie of point, um, point 0.2 of like either admin time or academic time because you're, you might be at an academic institution and you want to do, you know, te- you're going to be doing some teaching and all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, um, some places it's going to be 0.9 full-time. 
It, yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Stuart. The, read it, yeah. Let's, so, let's, let's use our out loud voices. Yeah, let's our, use okay. our voices, Stuart. Stuart, please. You know, I was going to say, yeah, so for, to put FTE in perspective, Great. if you have no inpatient, a uh, each 0.1 on FTE is one half day. So if you are a 0.8 FTE with no inpatient, essentially you're seeing clinic uh, eight half days per week and then two half days of whatever. Admin. Admin or teaching yeah. or something. Right. Mm-hmm. right. And so... So it's kind of like the pie in the pie analogy, 80% of your time would be spent seeing clinic and 20% of your time Same would be patient. spent uh, doing whatever the prior admin correct prior authorizations. Yes. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> and that's why, you know, a lot of, a lot of people kind of chip away at their full FTE. I, I was at a grand rounds recently. This, this, ma- you know, master clinician was reflecting back on his career and he was speculating that he thinks a 0.8 FTE is is basically where, you know, 20% of the time you're doing what you really love and what you're passionate about and like kind of fulfills you. The other 0.8 you're you're seeing like you're seeing patients in whatever capacity. He thought that was the nice mix that he eventually settled on for himself. Uh, Justin, you were going to say something? Well, I have a quick question for you later because this was something that came up that I never uh, totally overcame, but there was always a little bit of awkwardness. I don't think it was just my baseline awkwardness, but of asking about um, academic tenure and that I wanted a role that where I would be going up the ranks where I you know, was on a promotion track as opposed to just a academic affiliation. And it was very awkward for me to figure that out without kind of blatantly asking, like, is this a tenure track position? And it seemed kind of, I don't know, it seemed like that was an awkward question. I don't know. Do you have any advice on how to, uh, first, maybe you could help us uh, differentiate what a um, like a instructor with a faculty staff appointment might be as opposed to someone who is on a promotion track and then how to ask about that in the interview? So that's a great question, Justin. And I don't know if I have a clear answer for you on this. And I'm going to be totally honest and I'd love to hear the, the um, comments from the rest of you. Um, the reason being is that I think every institution is a little bit different when it comes to promotions and what is considered tenure, which positions are can go up for tenure, which ones can't, um, what that, um, what the different um, uh, requirements are for each person to get promoted from level to level. And so this is very institution dependent. And um, that's the piece that's actually really difficult when it comes to giving career advice about this because you can be someplace where it's um, there's a lot of um, you know they may be more liberal when it comes to what things are considered appropriate or scholarship or something for for promotion and another place where you have to have a certain you know it has to be a publication in a peer-reviewed journal Um, so in so my best advice for that is a lot of institutions also have like have this actually available on their website. So maybe you can try Googling it and seeing it for that specific institution first. Um, and then the other person that might be really a good person to reach out to is when you're going to be doing interviews, um, you might have like a more junior person or a person that's more um, that's either newer or um that you might feel a little bit more comfortable asking some of these more sensitive questions to um, rather than the division chief, for example, that you're going to be interviewing with um, as, as a way to find out some of that information. Another piece of advice is it's okay to ask to talk to um, some alums who might have left the institution, for example, you know, like whether they had to leave for a certain reason and 
reaching out to them and kind of getting more of a, um, uh, you, you know, that would be a very easy, safe person to ask this kind of information from. But since while we're on the topic, the question I was going to ask is sort of what, if, if you guys are comfortable talking about it, what the interview day looked like, because I know, at, you know, we'll refer to as Cash Act Northeast, there's like eight interviews that range from your uh, department chair all the way down to someone who's relatively early career faculty, like Leah was saying. And is that is that common? If they could speak to that, I feel like that'd be useful information. Stuart? So, so as a department chair or d- division chair myself, I can tell you that there are several different ways that we can set up the interview. It really depends on if you really match or if you kind of match. It, it, it is really the way it, it comes across as, or if we have multiple applicants for one position. So if we have multiple applicants for one position, when you come in, we actually do a roundtable interview with about four or five uh, physicians and you. And, and we have a script that, that we go through that we, we're asking these questions. But we, what we really want to know is who you are, is what it comes down to. And the reason why we have a script is so we have a, a set standard to compare one applicant to another applicant. It's not because we're trying to like insult your intelligence. It's because we want you to have the same chance as another applicant who's applying for that job. If, on the other hand, you're applying for a job for which you're the only applicant, and in fact, it's very difficult to find an applicant for this one specific job, we're going to interview you one-on-one. We'll do a phone interview at first because we want to make sure it's worth our time to fly you out to to do a face-to-face interview. The face-to-face interview may be... an hour or two at the most. The rest of it's just going to be walking around the institution, seeing if it's a match for you. Um, if we get to that point to, to where we're walking around the institution to see if it's a match for you, essentially, in my mind, we've already made that decision that we want to hire you. We're trying to convince you that 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 you want to come and work with us. That's really what what the difference is in in, in that uh, situation. If we're willing to front to front the money to fly you out, I mean, honestly, we want you. Is really what it comes down to. Um, but don't don't you you don't want that to get to your head because if that gets to your head, we may back out at the last minute saying, you know what, they're not quite as humble as as it seemed at first, and this person may not be a good fit for our team. So there's a lot that really goes into it. There's there's a lot of thought process beforehand, but ultimately it comes down to, are you a good fit for us, and are we a good fit for you? Last time I interviewed, they gave me a folder that would have like the names, or they would email me ahead of time, like, here's yeah. who you're going to be interviewing with. I would look mm-hmm. those people up on social media. Most of them didn't have social media, uh, but but they had at least a, a university uh, a, a page, a, a faculty page. And so I, I, the one other thing that I wanted to mention by saying that is that I, I'm of the belief that you should at least have a LinkedIn profile that has yeah, like definitely. a nice picture of yourself mm-hmm. that says like your credentials and a little bit about your interests, just so that people can like see that you're a real person that's done real things. Right. It, it just, I think it's just a professional thing. Even if you're not like on there interacting and updating it, like you don't have to be on Twitter, but I, I do think some of those things are important. I, I won't lie. I looked at LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, anywhere I can find you, because if I hire you and there's something in your background that potentially is, could discredit our institution, I'm not even going to look at you. Um, you know, that's, that's a hard stop right there. You know, if you're, if you're out there and essentially like stirring the pot for things that we don't want to be brought into our institution, we, we can't bring that in. Um, it's, it's just the way it is, especially yeah, in this political climate. on Twilight fanfic? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I have come across, uh, across, uh, accounts on Wattpad before, which, which is hilarious because that's what my daughter uses, but, uh, uh, for in, in individuals that were applying, but. Well, Paul, why don't you take us 
kind of home here. We have a little, we, I mean, we could literally talk about this for hours, but I think we should, there's some, some particular areas we should touch on before we close. And we have another episode on finding a dream job that people can listen to, to supplement this episode. Yeah, no, I, I think, I think it's worth talking about sort of the, like the emotional transition too, even though I'm not really the, the touchy feely guy of the podcast, but I feel like it's, yes, you for are. me, it was, a, well, maybe I am. I don't know. It's hard to tell <laughs> But, um, like I, I thought, even though for me, I, I won't disclose my job background too much, but it's kind of like coasting to the finish line. I had a relatively easy process. Still, the the emotional transition from resident to attending, I found kind of nerve wracking. And I'm just wondering, um, from Justin, who's sort of recently kind of gone through a similar transition, and from Aaliyah, who shepherds people through this transition, like how do you help people kind of prepare sort of mentally um, to let them know that yes, they're going to be competent attendings and they're sort of ready to do the job. So there are definitely things that your institution is going to do to kind of help you. Um, if you have like, you know, some of the things that I love doing is towards the end of third year, if I'm on service, having my third years do pretending rounds. And so they're the attending and I'm right standing in the back. I'm forcing them to make the decisions. I'm trying to push them to be independent. I try to do this with my chief residents, for example. Like if I'm in the end of the third year, you're going to be the ward attending soon. So <laughs> what do you want to do here? Um, if they're going to be precepting in clinic, having them actually precept an intern or a medical student. Um, these are things that you can do to prepare yourself while you're being observed and get some feedback from your, from your attendings um, to kind of give you a little bit of um, practice um, before you actually have to do it for the first time. Uh, other th- other things to think about um, are that it's totally okay that you are completely scared out of your mind. I no, I mean it. I, it's totally okay, and and embrace it because that's good. <laughs> I think I think it's good to be nervous, and it's good to also know that when you go to a, a new place for a new job, Justin, like for example, you're going to a new place, um, you know, before you knew who to go to for help and just know that everyone there wants you to be successful. Everybody there wants you to succeed. Uh, so it's okay for you to find your co, you know, your co, your peers, your colleagues and to ask them for questions. I think people suddenly think that when they become attending, they have to like be the, the know-it-all, like they have to know everything and that if they don't know something, oh my God, but that's like, we, we ask questions. I ask questions all the time. I'm always in Paul's office. Like when, when I was at Temple, I'd be in Paul's office, like, Paul, what would you do? This is what I did. What do you think about that? And, um, and it's totally acceptable and normal for you to ask for help. Um, the first time I wrote my own my own note, um, it was as an outpatient. I was seeing uh, a colleague's, it was as I was seeing a colleague's uh, patient and the patient had resistant hypertension. And I literally was just seeing the patient as an acute, I think it was a novella with cited articles mm-hmm. confirming, you know, like justifying my clinical <laughs> reasoning because it was the first time that I wasn't attending, seeing a patient on my own and I had to have a plan and I needed it to be evidence-based. So <laughs> it's totally okay. Um, just I, I would encourage you, which I wish I had done when I went to my first job, is see if you're um, – try to identify ahead of time if you can, like a clinical mentor, just because you might be going to a place with a new system and asking your division chief um, to maybe pair you up with someone who's a, young, a junior faculty member who works in the clinic really, mm-hmm. you know, 
right. and knows the system, that being with that person and pairing with that person can really help ease the transition because you'll they'll introduce you to who all the key people in the office are or the key people in the you know in your section or division um, to kind of make your transition to the att- attending hood a little bit easier because part of the difficulty like now you know the medicine it's just learning the system of a new place sometimes and that can be right. just as challenging and debilitating I'm telling I'm on service now for the first time at my new job and I'm telling the interns that we're interns together because I have <laughs> no idea how to do anything I had like I went to the chiefs today to like learn how to put in an order so <laughs> um having you know kind of establishing ahead of time the people you're going to be able to go to for help can can really make things a little bit easier. <laughs> and a lot of these places are going to be thoughtful about that and set you up with people to either shadow or help transition you. And Justin, how are you doing, buddy? How are you feeling? How can we help share with you so nice, the process? Paul. I, uh, I feel right now, um, you know, I think we all have our own strengths. And uh, one of my strengths I've learned now is being on vacation in between jobs. <laughs> I'm doing a great job and it's been really good. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this, uh, I think everyone addresses and acknowledges this concept of imposter syndrome. And I think that happens at every like career change and uh, transition. And I remember a, um, uh, uh, early career mentor of mine, uh, Dr. Reza Manesh, who's been featured on the show and does a lot of other uh, his other podcasts, clinical problem solvers. I remember once he was my attending, and I was talking about the transition or uh, you know becoming junior faculty, and he sat down and you know looked at me and goes, "Justin, have you ever heard of the concept imposter syndrome?" And I was like, "Yeah, man, yeah, like yeah, I know imposter syndrome. Well, yeah, of course." Um, and I think it's something that, uh, again, you know, acknowledging it is is nice and makes me feel a little more comfortable going in that, that that's like a thing. Um, but I think also like one of my uh, concerns is, like you say, kind of knowing the medicine and getting used to the system, but of taking on a role of being an educator and something that we do a little bit as a senior resident, but you have a little bit more um, support for and how that will go. And I think it'll probably take a little time. I'm just kind of getting the bearings, but I'm excited for it. I'm going in with a very like positive attitude. There's one article that I, I was recently looking at um, that was an inquiry into career early careers of master clinicians by Vivek Murthy and other people in uh, Journal of Graduate Mental Education. Um, he's also been a really nice mentor of mine, um, but uh, kind of talks about the... Oh, and uh, actually, yeah, Gapreet Diwali's on uh, as a senior. Daliwa. Um, Dali, uh, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Gurpreet. Uh, right. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't listen. We're okay. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, I kind of talked about some practices that people can do to be a good educator, to be a good uh, clinician, to kind of continue to develop their skills. And I think that's something we're going to try to fall back on. And again, kind of idealizing certain junior faculty mentors that I respect. And Justin, I, I think I, I went into, uh, it's it's been about six years now, and I was just like, reading so much and studying for boards and like just try being like, oh, I'm going to be an educator. I I have to know everything. I got to be able to like be so far ahead of all these residents. And then, you know, now with the show, I think the most, the most compliments we get is just the fact that we're like attendings. We've been practicing for a while and the whole show is based on us admitting all this stuff that we don't know. And like, you know, people consider us to be medical educators and, and it's just like, scary. It's very freeing to do that. I mean, no one, 
like you know we raise medical students to to just like show off all this stuff that they know and and but that's as an attending you don't need to do that i mean you you need to say if you know it that's great and you and you make the teaching point but if you don't know it you can admit that and you can look it up together uh you you definitely want to seem like like you know enough to know what you're doing and alia you made the point that there's a whole committee of people that residents probably don't know about that meet about them like once a month and make sure that they're all tracking to independent practice. And maybe you can talk about that a little bit. Sure. So ACGME requires that every residency program has a clinical competency committee. And you might hear and residents hear about it, but they have no idea what the competency committee actually does. And so every six months, um, your program is required to... Uh, submit milestones on how um, on how each resident is performing and progressing throughout their residency program, and um, when you graduate, basically your program and this whole group of people that makes up the clinical competency who've who's reviewed all of your growth throughout the course of the three years, they believe that you are ready to graduate and you are ready for independent practice. And so, you know, they sign off, they recommend to your program director that you graduate and your program director agrees. So not only is this huge group of people, there's also your program director. And so all of these people in your residency program, whether you know it or not, have all this belief and support in you that you are truly ready to take the step to be an attending. Very reassuring. I almost feel like that's a great place to end this. (laughs) Aaliyah, this has been fantastic. Definitely there's been some stones uh, unturned here, but uh, that doesn't make sense. Aaliyah, this has been fantastic. (laughs) And uh, I wanted to thank you so much for your time. (laughs) Justin, it was great having you here too. I feel like it was nice to have kind of the dueling perspectives. And while we didn't cover every possible thing, I think we did a really great job uh, people hopefully will find this really helpful. I still find it helpful now, just like kind of reflecting on this because people are going to be asking me these questions since I'm in medical education. And I think even if people aren't going into academic medicine, a lot of these same concepts are going to apply to them. Um, Aaliyah, did you have any favorite take-home points that you wanted to give to the audience? My favorite take-home points uh, would be definitely either use a mentor or your program director because they're going to be able to help you a lot in terms of helping you refine what it is you may think you want to want to do um, in your future or is your next steps after your residency. If they, they're going to be the ones who are going to be able to help you find a job or, you know, set up introductions. And so definitely turn to your program director and to your mentors and your, your network. Um, and then the other thing is that I would say is um, – like you were saying, Justin, like imposter syndrome, that's okay. And make sure you, um, you can embrace it and it's going to be normal. And, um, when you're taking, making the transition, just feel reassured that there's a lot of people who believe in you and who've, um, kind of signed off on you as well. (laughs) Um, can I just make one point? What I love that Justin said was that he reflected, he's going to reflect a lot on junior faculty um, that he's admired or faculty members that he's admired. And, and I am so glad he said that because that's the, the same advice that I give to rising second years um, to think the, about. And, and I think this is a parallel situation um, where you've finishing your graduating residency, you're going to be in attending and you're wondering, how am I going to be a good teacher? And one of the best things you can do is actually reflect on the behaviors of your favorite educators. What are the behaviors that they they 
embrace? What are the different things that they're doing? Um, because those are going to be the things that you will want to emulate and you may want to kind of make part of your own. And that's going to be um, a great place, kind of like a starting place for you. So I love that you said that. I, I don't know if we should go around. Paul, D- Justin, did you guys, Stuart, did you guys want to give any take-home points, any any words of advice to send off these PGY3s that are going to be embarking on their early careers? Know yourself before you apply. Say It uh, was a somewhat stressful experience, but it comes out in the end being wonderful. I'm very excited to be started, very optimistic, and uh, I think it's... Uh, causes a little bit of unrest figuring out exactly what you want to do and where you want to be. But in the end, it's uh, very rewarding and satisfying. And it's nice to reflect back on the whole residency experience. Best four years of my life that I would never do again, I think. <laughs> right. And I think I'll be nihilistic, um, but optimistic at the same time, as is my way. I, I also just want to reassure people that this is probably not going to be the only job they ever have. So even if even if all this goes south on you, you get a job that you hate, um, or even if it's just a job that's not quite a great fit for you. I mean, statistically, there's going to be other jobs out there. So nothing is permanent. So even if all our great advice is followed and things still don't work out, um, this is this is not permanent. Um, none of it's permanent. So don't don't stress too much, I guess, is the point I would make. That's right. Hashtag blame Paul. Sure. <laughs> the, the one thing that I would like to say, some, some, something that has always stuck with me, this Sebastian uh, Junger wrote the book called I think it was called Tribe, uh, something like that. I'll put it in the show notes. But he he talked about these people leaving battle, uh, these really horrible conditions in the war. They're, they're like in these forward operating bases. And th- when they leave those really dangerous situations, the camaraderie that they had is it, it almost made made things so hard when they got back, even though they were in a safer, much more comfortable location. And I think that in residency, you have this like just insane camaraderie built into it. And it's going to feel different when you leave there and you start your new job. Just, you know, keep in touch with your friends, uh, make new friends, and just be aware that you're, if you feel something's missing, that's probably what it is. So maybe join a beer league softball. That's my advice. <laughs> so what I'm hearing is the real treasure is the friends that you made along the way. <laughs> <laughs> that's your informal console network okay <laughs> so when yeah. you're a new attending and you have no idea you text your best friend who is a nephrologist or a yeah. cardiologist yeah. <laughs> and people i mean we do it i still get text messages my husband's id he still gets text messages from our friends from residency so this is the way it is yeah friends for life <laughs> this has been another episode of the curbsiders bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole Yummy. Ish. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That's right, Timberlake, because we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Gar- Gar- Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I'm still Stuart Kent Brigham. And I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I am Justin Lee Burke. Not Timberlake. We'll just let it sit. Nope. <laughs> Great. Good stuff. And this remains Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye, Paul. Goodbye, Paul.